The east branch of the Nimishillen Creek was knee-deep near the Allen Avenue Bridge, so the icy stream barely hid Florence Nitzman's body. Large cobblestones in each leg of the young woman's bloomers anchored her corpse. Water flowed over her heavy blue plaid coat, swirling its fur trim like gray moss. A relative and a neighbor found Nitzman's body not far from her home on the southern outskirts of Canton on February 1st, 1924. It was Friday morning. Nitzman, a telephone operator, had been missing since she left work Wednesday night. For the second time in a month, a young woman had been found murdered, and authorities were under pressure to catch the killer or killers. That a fiend is at work in Canton and has added the second victim to his list of crimes is the opinion of police, the evening repository. Welcome to Tales from the Rep Morgue, the podcast that explores the 200-year-old archive of the Canton Repository. I'm your host, Shane Hoover. Nineteen twenty-four dawned in Canton with the murder of eighteen-year-old Ruth Hunter, who vanished on her way to a downtown dance and was found dead on a country road in Perry Township. Police charged the local businessman with murdering Hunter, but he had an alibi, and a judge dismissed the case. Now, just two weeks later, another young woman was dead. Had the same killer struck again? Was Nitzman's death a copycat crime? Nobody knew. Has Canton a moron of degenerate qualities and homicidal tendencies who strangles young girls to death after inducing them to ride in an automobile? Indications are the question could be logically answered in the affirmative. Canton Daily News. Part 1. Flow from Rochester. Florence was murdered. I am positive of that. She was a good girl. She did not know any young men here and had never been out alone. She was an unusually pretty girl. Emma Lowe, Florence Nitzman's cousin. In September 1924, 19-year-old Florence Nitzman departed Rochester, New York for Canton, Ohio. She left behind her parents, John and Pauline, her eight siblings, her fiancé, and her job at Eastman Kodak. Nitzman's cousins lived in Canton, and she stayed at their home south of the city on Wuski Place Southeast. Everyone called her Flo. Soon she landed a job at the Ohio Bell office on Tusk, next to the Canton Daily News building. She postponed her plan to marry a postal clerk back in Rochester and told her sister that she planned to stay in Canton for a while. She enjoyed the city, even though she hadn't made a lot of friends to that point. Nitzman's evenings followed the rhythms of factory town life. Clock out at 6, jump on the streetcar at 3rd Street and Market Avenue South, get off at 15th Street Southeast, walk the block or so to Allen Avenue, turn south, 
across the creek, and she was almost home to Wusky Place. But the half-mile home stretch on Allen Avenue had become menacing in the weeks before Nitzman's death. A man driving a large car repeatedly offered her a ride home. She refused. Her family decided it was too much like what happened to that pretty hunter girl. After that, a relative, usually Flo's cousin Emma Lowe, would meet her each evening at the Allen Avenue Bridge. But one night in January, it was raining so hard, and a man pulled up and offered Flo and Emma a ride. They accepted. The driver was young and heavyset, with a full face. The nickel plating on his touring car gleamed impressively in the rain. It was a Studebaker, or maybe a Buick. The man claimed to be a cop or the brother of a cop. That part of the story wasn't clear. He said his job was to get girls home safely, on account of the Hunter murder and all. He asked Nitzman if she walked home alone every evening at that time. She told him someone was always waiting to meet her. It was raining again on the night of January 30th. Nitzman left work, but she didn't make it home. We waited and watched and waited for her to return. At first we felt she might have been detained. We waited all that evening and the next morning asked police to search for her. Emilo. A neighbor heard a scream from the area of Allen Avenue around 9 o'clock that night. The scream was quickly muffled. On Friday morning, February 1st, Emma's husband, Arthur Lowe, and a neighbor, George Fogel, went looking for Nitzman. They found her in a snag in the creek. I saw something dark in the water and waited out. Then I saw the glint of gold braid and a lot of shiny buttons. That is flow, I said. I know that dress. My wife gave her that dress to wear to work. Coroner Thomas Shorb struggled to find a definitive cause of death. There was no water in Nitzman's lungs, meaning she was dead before someone put her in the creek. But there were no marks on her face and neck, no broken bones, no obvious cause of death. Just like in the Hunter case. The two women were similar in other ways. They were about the same age. They were medium to slight in build. They had light hair and wore small round hats. They were bundled in blue coats trimmed in gray fur. The coroner said both women had been killed by a rare method, largely unknown outside medical books. Pressure on the vagus nerve. The cause of death was a certain severe compression of a certain portion of the neck at which place the thumb and one finger of a strong, muscular arm, correctly applied, can and will produce almost instant death without leaving any visible sign of the cause of death until a few days later, when bruise spots made by the fingers become apparent to the naked eye. The marks on each body are very much the same. The scratches and the bruises show that both girls put forth all the resistance they possessed. Dr. Thomas Shorb Part 2 when we come back.
Part 2. The Confession. The police investigation quickly narrowed on two young men who roomed in a house at the corner of Allen Avenue and Wusky Place. Frank Hept and Henry Bauer were 25-year-olds from Rochester, Nitzman's hometown. The day before she died, they had tried to get her to ride back to New York with them in their Buick. But the promising lead evaporated when detectives confirmed the men were 200 miles from Canton the night Nitzman went missing. Just as the investigation seemed to hit a wall, a new suspect confessed to the killing. Police had grabbed Joseph Pierce and Worcester after getting a tip about a man with scratches on his face and hands. The 31-year-old Detroiter was six feet tall, thin, and prone to fainting spells. Doctors described him as abnormal. Pierce's confession was incredible. I was suffering from one of my attacks, which, blind me, caused pains in my head when I saw this girl coming towards me. I grabbed her, and she fought. Then she scratched my face, and I grabbed her by the throat and choked her. She died, and then I carried and dragged her body to the creek some distance away. Before I threw the body in the water, I put four stones in her bloomers so she would sink. I watched the body sink in the water, then I sat down on the bank. I don't know how long I sat there thinking, and I said to myself, gee, I didn't want to kill that girl. Then I decided to move on, and I left. Pierce denied any connection to Hunter's death, and soon police suspected Pierce was only repeating what he had read in the newspapers. He also changed his story and said an accomplice had actually killed Nitzman. But he couldn't describe the man. He was an Italian. No, he was a Pole. Or was he Spanish? After a couple of days, detectives learned the truth. Pierce couldn't have killed Nitzman. He had been in St. Vincent Hospital in Erie, Pennsylvania on the day of the murder after suffering an epileptic fit. When I get these attacks, I imagine things. I didn't kill anyone. They're holding an innocent man in jail, and they ought to let me go home to my mother. Police sent Pierce to probate court for commitment to an asylum, and the investigation moved on. A judge sentenced a man to 30 days in the county workhouse for driving around in a car and impersonating an officer, but police said he had nothing to do with Nitzman's death. A citizens' committee hired detectives from the famous Burns Agency, and county commissioners gave the prosecutor up to $5,000 to fight crime. Some of it would go to investigating the Hunter and Nitzman murders. Private detectives working for the county spent eight weeks gathering evidence for a grand jury in the Hunter case. More than 90 witnesses were called. There were no indictments. On March 1st, a 30-year-old woman was choked and robbed of her groceries and $5 outside her home on Sycamore Avenue Southeast. 
the woman screamed, and the attacker ran into the dark. The woman's house was a half mile from the Allen Avenue Bridge over the Nimishillen Creek. Part 3, when we come back. Part 3, Still Unsolved. There were 28 homicides in 1924 in Stark County. Those of Flo Nitzman and Ruth Hunter were never solved. Louis Griffith Jr., the primary suspect in Hunter's murder, sold his factory and moved to Worcester, Massachusetts. More than a year after Hunter's murder, Griffith announced he had hired private detectives and that an arrest was imminent in the case. The Stark County Sheriff said he didn't know what Griffith was talking about, and an arrest was never made. Griffith retired in 1968 as president and chairman of Riley Stoker Corporation at the age of 79. He died a few years later. While working on this story, I made contact with one of his grandsons. He said he would have to confer with his siblings before discussing the case. He wouldn't give me his phone number, and he never called back. Hunter's brother Earl married his sister's friend Margaret Falk, who had seen Ruth talk to the man in the Packard. Earl sold insurance for a while before his father-in-law got him a job as a Canton cop. He never said much about the case to his children and died following a traffic crash in 1950. Margaret talked a little bit more, but most of what the family knows about the case comes from old newspapers. Cheryl, who asked me not to use her last name, is the daughter of Ruth Hunter's youngest sister. She said the tragedy affected the family for generations. They just were always afraid, I think. And my mom was always afraid, too, and she was always really careful with us. So it kind of, you know, went over to us, and now now I was, when I raised my kids, I was overly protective also. As unsolved homicides, the Hunter and Nitzman cases technically remain open. In 1926, a private detective investigating the assassination of Canton Daily News editor Don Millette claimed the Hunter and Nitzman murders were linked to bootleggers. Hunter's family was rumored to have complained about bootlegging, and Nitzman, the telephone operator, had overheard conversations about illegal activities and even the Hunter murder. Or so the theory went. Were the two young women victims of the same killer or killers? Or was Nitzman slaying a copycat of Hunter's murder? Did Lewis Griffith's money and influence help him escape justice? Or was he a victim of mistaken identity? Were the police and coroner incompetent? Or did they do their best with the tools and techniques of the day? Did Canton's undertow of corruption hide the killers from justice? Who knows? The truth died 96 years ago. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Rep Morgue. A special thanks to our voice talent for this episode. Sherita Gaucher, Jessica Holbrook, 
Allison Mattis, Greg Conetop, Rich DeRozier, and Tim Bodis. Our theme music is Blind by Maidon. Other songs heard in this episode included Snowdrop by Kevin McLeod and Depth of Focus by Shane Ivers. You can read the show notes for this episode and listen to other podcasts at cantonrep.com. <laughs>